this is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is from Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 6. It's the reading for the third Sunday of Easter in the year C cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be one of the scriptures for May 1st, 2022. In this short passage from the book of Acts, we arrive at a pivotal moment in the story of a man named Saul. And there is both intent and intervention in this story. And I want to start with intent. As chapter 9 opens, we read verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Saul is a character that has been introduced to us earlier in the book of Acts. He was one of the facilitators of the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Saul was also mentioned as a a figure who was uh, central to the persecution of the earliest church that was forming in Jerusalem. And so as Acts chapter 9 opens, we find this story of Saul who is eventually going to become the Apostle Paul, uh, departing to go to Damascus. Now, we know much about Saul's background, not from the book of Acts, but from many of Paul's writings where he reflects on his experience as a Jewish leader and Pharisee earlier in his life. And so as we read Acts chapter 9, we're informed by that information we know about Saul or Paul from his writings in the New Testament. But at this point, we're not privy to that. And so it's important as we read Acts 9, we, we hold it in its context. We, we try not to let other sources of information influence how we read the story, because sometimes that can lead us astray And when we try to find the meaning of what this text is telling us. Now, it says in verse 1 that, that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And this is kind of typical Greek language for one who is a persecutor or even prosecutor. Remember, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and, of course, the Gospel of Luke, addresses these two pieces of literature to a Greek-speaking world. So Luke's intended audience is not primarily Jewish. His primary, primary audience is dominantly Gentiles, if you will. And so by using some of this language that Greeks and Romans would have been familiar with, like breathing threats and murder, it conveys a meaning to that audience that's important. Within Greek culture, um, it was considered a failing to be enraged, so that if you were completely emotionally unhinged within the, the Greek-speaking world, um, that somehow denoted that you lacked a sense of self-control or dis, dis, uh, you know, uh, discretion in much the same way we treat it within our own culture. And so this is an influence of that Greek culture, that Roman culture even, into the world in which we live today. And so when it says something like he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, it, it's, it's really Luke in some ways uh, depicting Paul as somewhat emotionally unhinged and out of control. It says in the text that uh, Saul went and asked for letters so that he could go to the synagogue in Damascus. And he asks for these letters from the high priest. So let's think about it for a moment. What authority does the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem have 
to send one of his religious leaders to a different city to arrest people. And so there's lots of discussion about this in, in academic circles about what kind of authority Saul would have or even what kind of authority the high priest would have to allow Saul to go to a different city to arrest people simply because of their divergent religious beliefs. We have some good historical evidence for this. Several decades earlier, Julius Caesar gave endorsements to some of the Jewish authorities to do this very thing, that they were allowed to self-police themselves. And so this isn't necessarily unusual that the high priest would give letters authorizing Saul to go to Damascus to arrest people. There's precedent for that historically. Now, Damascus is the destination. Now, there are a number of reasons why some of these early, early believers in Jesus ended up in Damascus. Uh, perhaps they had fled there because of what they had seen happen to Stephen earlier in the book of Acts. They, they could have simply migrated there. They could have been sojourning in Jerusalem, become part of the Christian movement, and then eventually went home to Damascus. Regardless of how they got there, there are those who are believers in Jesus in Damascus. Now, it's a six-day walk from Jerusalem to Damascus. So this is not a, a short journey. It takes some time. You have to descend a range of mountains, then cross a plain uh, to get to uh, Damascus. Now, it says in Acts chapter 9 that Saul was looking uh, to find anyone who belonged to the way. It says in uh, verse 2, that he went to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. This language, the way, occurs six times in the book of Acts. And it's a, a, a name used within that first century a Jewish world to describe different communities or, or gatherings of people that uh, practiced somewhat divergent ways of Jewish religious life. So, for example, the way is used to describe the Qumran community that uh, uh, was in particular responsible for what we know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were kind of, um, I wouldn't say cult Jewish communities, but they were divergent from kind of the mainstream Jewish religious traditions. And so these early Christians earned the same label as others who were in this tradition and they were regarded by the Jewish community with a sense of suspicion because the Qumran community, the Essenes, the Zealots, these other, these other kind of mutated Jewish religious traditions um, were a, a threat to the stability of Jewish influence. They, they constantly were seen as stirring the pot, if you will, or fomenting uh, forms of uh, uprising or rebellions against the Roman Empire. And so in order to maintain their influence as Jewish leaders, these, these groups were considered with a degree of suspicion because they might uh, bring about some sort of uprising that would destabilize everything for the Jewish religious leadership. Now, what Saul is after here is to bring men and women back to Jerusalem in shackles. And what we know from the story is that Saul did not travel alone. He took people with him to help him in this effort. Saul was not going to go single-handedly and arrest people and bring them back. No, he had an entourage who were traveling with him. This is all about Saul's intent. Why is he going to Damascus and what is it he's seeking to do? And that opens up a key passageway here for us, that God moves in and through our actions to transform our intent. You see, Saul 
has a decision to go to Damascus to find those of the way. And it's as he goes on his way, it ultimately leads to his conversion to the way. You see, Saul intended to do one thing, but in the acts that come with his intent, God intersects it in a different way that he never could have expected. Now, this isn't to say that this whole story of Saul's conversion could not have happened differently or could have happened differently. God is always working. God is always seeking. Saul goes intending to persecute. God intends to save. And this is something that Wesleyans and Methodists call prevenient grace. It's the grace of God that's intervening in our lives before we're even aware of it. And so we must recognize always that whether we see it or not, whether we know it or not, and even when we formulate our intent or our plans, God is always at work moving in our midst. Now, along the road to Damascus, there is this intervention that happens when he is interrupted in his journey. It tells us as we move down into verse number three. Now, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, as he was traveling is what the text tells us. Now, just a special note for those who have a higher degree of familiarity with the story. I just want you to notice there's no horse. So oftentimes when I hear this text preached or taught on, people say, Saul was riding on his horse and he fell down when he saw the great light. There's actually no horse in the story, just to make that clear, so we all know that Saul is walking to Damascus. It's a six-day journey. And as he's walking, this light appears as he was close to the city. It doesn't happen on the first day of the journey. It doesn't happen on the second day of the journey. It happens just before he gets to the city. Uh, this is a, a, a way in which God seems to move just in time. And so there's this light from heaven. And light from heaven is an important piece of the Jewish religious tradition that Luke is trying to convey to his Gentile readers. Uh, a classic Jewish theophany story is unfolding here. Now, theophany is a word you may not have heard before, but a theophany simply means an appearing of God. So when God appears to people, it's called a theophany. And this classic theophany story falls into the same kind of form as many Jewish theophany stories. There's a bright light that appears. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice. And the voice uses uh, that he hears what's called a double vocative. And double vocative means uh, when the voice speaks, it says, Saul, Saul. So in other words, naming Saul two times is the double vocative. And that's important because that's a familiar theme in scripture. So if you look at some of these theophany episodes throughout the Bible, you'll find like in the story of Abraham, the story of Isaiah, story of others, where God appears or speaks and then God speaks their name twice or the angel says their name twice. And what Luke is doing in rendering the story for us is helping us understand that what's happening to Saul is in concert with all of these other stories in the Bible where God has intervened and appeared to people as they were perhaps intending to do something else. But in this story, what we find peculiar is this. It's that Jesus himself speaks. And this is remarkable in the book of Acts because 
Jesus, we know through uh, the Gospels and in the early part of the book of Acts, that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. But this is the only story we have of the appearing of Jesus after his ascension. And so there's this sense in which Saul will later describe this in his writings when he uses the name Paul as a place in which Jesus himself spoke to him. And Paul will talk about this in his later writings in the New Testament as a a validation of his apostolic ministry. He just didn't sense a call. He didn't just have a movement of the Spirit. He just didn't have a prompting. Paul believed quite seriously that Jesus himself appeared on this road and spoke to him. Now, what Jesus asks him is a very simple question. Why are you persecuting me. Now, this is important in this language because Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus personally. He was persecuting those who were followers of Jesus. But notice the language that's used here, how Jesus speaks to him. Why are you persecuting me? So that the persecution of the followers of Jesus is a persecution of himself. Now, Saul in verse five doesn't answer the question Jesus gave him. The question is, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response is, who are you, Lord? So he doesn't actually answer the question posed to him. And there's a lot of speculation in Saul's response amongst scholars about what does it mean when he says, who are you, Lord? It's simply clear that he's having some sort of divine interruption. And so the word Lord is kind of used in a generic sort of form here to refer to someone who perhaps has authority or power over him which, of course, the way the story is rendered, he does. And so Jesus answers the question that Saul gave him. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice again the language that it's a persecution of Jesus himself, not just the followers of Jesus. And then Jesus tells him to get up, enter the city, and you'll be told. Notice that he gets no other instruction. He doesn't have anything else to go on other than get up, go to the city, and wait there. So Jesus's engagement with Saul changes the whole course of his life. And as you read the rest of Acts 9, you'll you'll read the story about how Saul went through his conversion experience itself when the prophet Ananias comes to him and visits him in Damascus. But just simply note for now that in this process of Saul's transformation, he's given nothing else in verse 6 except get up, Enter the city, and it will be told to you what we must do. Our text ends right there. Now, there's more to the story that we're perhaps familiar with, that there's three days in which Paul uh, Saul finds himself blind, he's unable to see, and he fasts as he waits for God to do what Jesus said God would do. Wait there, and it will be told to you what you must do. This is the key passageway here for us, that God moves in and through our actions just in time. You know, plotting and planning for us have their place in our life. All of us make plans. All of us think about what we need to get done or where we need to go or what needs to happen. But in reality, God moves in all of these moments and seasons of our lives. And so oftentimes, as we do our plotting and planning, we want the 
answer to our questions before we embark on the journey. And in the Bible, rarely do we ever see God's Spirit do that. God speaks in the moving, in the working, often just in time. Right before Saul gets to Damascus is when this episode happens. God moves right before so many things. And and so what I would suggest is this, is that our walk with God isn't framed on the certainty of our planning, but rather in faith of a God who walks along with us. And I think key to our own life is to remember that God is walking with us always, always present, always moving, always immediately around us, in us, and through us. There are sometimes we simply ask God to bless our plotting and our planning. And in reality, God is moving in moments and seasons and in our actions. That's it for this week. If you have comments or reflections, I invite you to go to my website, revcraig.com. That's R-E-V-C-R-A-I-G.com. In the upper right-hand corner, click on News. And then on the pop-up menu, you'll see, click on Podcasts. And then you'll be able to click on a particular episode and leave a comment. I look look forward to hearing from any of you that want to provide feedback or discussion. I look forward to engaging with you. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.